0: James is written to describe a cross-shaped life. Do you remember that? James is written to describe a cruciform life. That means, as we go through this book, we're gonna look at five things that identify a life that is shaped by the cross. In chapter one, we looked at the reality of endurance, that we are to endure trials, endure temptation, and enduringly look into the Word of God to find Jesus to persevere, to endure in looking to Christ. We're in chapter two, which is about the second item on the menu, authenticity. If we want to understand what a cross-shaped life looks like, it makes us authentic people, people that don't show favoritism. And this morning we'll look at genuine faith and what true, living, genuine faith is, what authentic faith is. Next, this book is not only describing for us a cross-shaped life, God is striving to motivate us to live by grace, to be motivated by grace to live, rather than being motivated by our deficits. And I realize that in your work, all, all day long and all week long. Everything is about deficits. This, isn't, this hasn't been done right. You can be more efficient here. You need to learn this over there. And we can get into this rut of focusing on ourselves and what we don't have, which is absolutely true. But the message of the gospel is you have everything you need in Jesus. So even as you see your own inadequacies, Make those inadequacies a place where you connect to Christ in his fullness. Does that make sense? So that we live our lives motivated by grace. Grace motivates us to live. So that way we won't think that salvation and life with Jesus is a self-help project. We won't think that God is the best way to control my life. If I just do what he says, I'll get what I want. That's not what God is looking for at all. He wants us to live our lives from the fullness of Jesus. How does this fit within our vision? Third, loving God, loving people, loving place. Well, remember God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. And that also means this that we've said over and over, and I hope that you're seeing this, these things come to life in James. God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things, with gospel intentionality. So he wants us to be normal people. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, being a normal person, it's hard to find in the culture that we live in. Just, I mean, like just normal. Like someone who's not hot or cold all the time, someone who is a listener, someone who has perspective. It's not easy to find that, is it? It's not easy to be that in our culture. God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So, next, let's set up this morning. So, before I read this, and and, excuse me, after I read this to you, you might get the impression that James and Paul radically disagree. You might get the impression after hearing this in James 2 that James and the Apostle Paul radically disagree. I mean, James is saying works is really important and necessary, and Paul says no works, So you might get the impression that there's some type of problem here. I want you to know that when you come across things like that in the Bible, I want you to understand that you have three options. The first option is this. You can read these things and think to yourself, okay, there's a contradiction, and therefore dismiss the Bible, dismiss Christianity, pick and choose what you want. Second option is this. You can think this is either or. Meaning, I get to pick James or I get to pick the Apostle Paul. Or, to make it more practical, if you've thought about the ideas before of predestination and free will, you can think to yourself, oh, well, I don't like predestination, so I'm going to focus on free will, or vice versa. I like predestination, but I don't want to focus on free will. That may be why some of you grew up thinking about the Bible in the way that you did because you were under a system of teaching in which there was an either or option. So you got one or the other and therefore that's how you came out thinking the way you do about the Bible. That's option two. So you can say there's a contradiction here, throw it out. You can say it's either or, pick what I want and emphasize what I want, ignore the other. Or three, both and, in which you read the scriptures and think, huh. This seems to say something a little bit different than the scripture over there, I need to harmonize. The problem isn't with the Bible, the problem may be with me. So therefore, just because I can't initially figure this out, I need to work towards seeing how these things fit together, does that make sense? Those are your only three options that I know of. You can read this and dismiss it, Pick one or see how they both fit together. And beloved, you are in a church in which our commitment is to harmonize. That we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we believe that it fits together, whether you're talking about predestination and free will, or whether you're talking about Paul or James. It fits together. So this morning, I hope you have that in the back of your mind as we go through these verses. Make sense? You got me so far? All right. Listen to this James 2 14 through 26. What I'm gonna read to you is the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that it comes from your heart. We thank you that you have worked in human authors over time by the power of your spirit so that what we read is exactly your mind. So we ask that Holy Spirit, through Jesus, that you would give us the mind of God that you would help us to think his thoughts, that you would help us to think the thoughts of our Father, that you would help us to live out a life that our Father has designed for us. Help us break into our lives afresh with truth. Give us joy, give us hope. Fill us with the gospel today. Fill us with good news because we need it. And we pray this, that you might get all glory. Father, Son, and Spirit, Amen. As we look at this text this morning, I want you to know that James is talking to us about something that's really serious. If you look at verse 17 and 26, you'll find that James is saying that there is a way to live and to think that is actually, from God's perspective, spiritual death. There's actually a way to live and think in a way that is absolutely useless. See that at the end of verse 20? Like James is writing about something that really, really matters. And he's doing that because he wants us to live and think in a way that is useful. He wants us to live and think in a way that is spiritually alive, meaning that we are alive to God, spiritually speaking, we are alive and are living a life that honors God and that mirrors and images that we trust him and that, he, that we belong to him. So what he writes about is serious. What he writes about is the difference between authentic faith and a counterfeit Something that may sound really good, but yet, at the end of the day, God considers spiritually dead and is actually useless. And James is writing about something that is authentic and something that is real, and therefore is very useful in our everyday lives and means that we are alive spiritually speaking to God. So that means we gotta do some thinking. And we need to think about our own lives and and think about authentic faith together. And he gives us four windows to see genuine faith. He gives us four windows in these verses to look through and to see genuine faith. The first window is the verses 14 through 17. That genuine faith cares for the needs of others. The second window we're gonna look through is this. In verses 18 and 19, that true genuine faith loves others more than self. In 20 through 24, we get the third window. And that window that we get to look through is this. We get to see that genuine faith creates real friendship. And finally, the fourth window we'll look through this morning together try to show you from this text is this, that real, genuine, authentic faith is grounded in hope. I don't know about you, but I like to think about hope, and I hope you do too. And I hope you are willing to think about others, and I hope you're willing to think about love, and I hope you're willing to think about friendship. So let's jump in and let's look through this first window together in verses 14 through 17. James begins by somewhat of a startling place. What good is it? Did you catch that? What good is it if someone, notice, says, I have faith, but yet there are no works? What good is it? Made me think of the the equipment that you can buy to work out. What good is it if you buy this workout machine and never ever use it? Anybody ever bought any workout machines and it just became a place to hang your clothes? Maybe I'm the only one. What good is it for someone to say I have faith and yet no works? For example, if you were to meet someone and they did not have clothes, and they didn't have food, like daily food. They didn't have the food they needed for that day. What good is it if you look at them and say, go in peace, be warm? What good is it? What good is it to see that someone has a need and not care about that need, legitimate need. He's not talking about the difference between fine clothes and and poor clothes. He's talking about someone who doesn't have clothes and someone who doesn't have food daily. What good is it for you to say be warm, go in peace? James is getting us to think about our own lives and he's getting us to think about faith and how faith is connected to works and thinking about the needs of others. In other words, what James is saying is, we are to live open-handed lives. We are to live open-handed lives. We are not supposed to live lives where our things have us. We are supposed to live lives so that the things that we have, we open-handedly give and share. So that we prove and mirror God in the world, the one that has everything, the one who has given us everything. Do you remember us talking about in chapter one that everything comes down? We are supposed to live open-handed lives in which we are caring for the needs of others. That's window number one. Here's window number two, verses 18 and 19. James says, well, suppose someone says, whether James was being super passive aggressive or not, I don't think so. I think he actually knows his own heart and knows that we have the same kind of heart he does. Suppose someone says, "Um, they want to divide faith and work so that someone says, you know what, you've got faith and I've got works, I'm a worker, I'm a doer. You are more of someone who thinks. You believe stuff, I'm into action. And it's strange because it seems as though James seems to say that the person who wants to divide divide faith and works thinks that faith is believing the right things as if it is enough to believe the right teaching, as if I, if I have the right teaching and I believe those with mental assent, if I intellectually comprehend and agree with them, then I'm good. You know why James seems to think faith is described in that way in this situation? Because he says, if you will, think with me for a moment about the demons. Look at what he says. You wanna to try to separate faith and works such that faith just means you believe the right stuff? Well, let's think about the demons for a moment. You believe that God is one? Beloved, that is one of the core commitments of the Christian faith, that we believe that God is one in three. This, this is taking from an old passage of scripture that was more popular than John 3.16 or Jeremiah 29.11. In Deuteronomy 6, this was the Shema is what it was called. This was the thing that God's people held on to, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James says, you believe that God is one, so do the demons. And when you start thinking about that, you start realizing, oh yeah, the demons at one time were not fallen and they learned from the uh, throne theological seminary. They, they were in the presence of God, like they learned their doctrine from the throne. Let me just tell you, I didn't learn my doctrine from the throne, I went to an institution. The demons learned theirs from God himself. And James says, they not only believe that God is one, but look at the text, it says, and they shudder. Did you notice that? Which means this, Not only do they believe what is true, but their lives have been affected by that truth. Do you see? They shudder, which means that they have, they shape their lives around what they believe God can and cannot do. Do you remember how this worked out in Jesus' ministry? Do you remember times when he would heal someone, someone who was demon-possessed, and the demons would say, what are you doing here, Jesus? Uh, It's not our time to leave yet. You remember that? There are all kinds of accounts of this in the Gospels in which Jesus would come into contact with demons and they would recognize his authority and they know that they are subject to that authority and they would beg Jesus not to make them leave. In other words, they believe the right things, they shudder, their lives are based upon doing because of what they know about God. Does that put a little fear in you a little bit? I mean, what James is trying to say is, you cannot separate faith and works. You can't be the kind of person who says, oh, you have faith, but I've got works. You can't be that person. In other words, James is saying it is possible if you allow this, James is teaching to keep pushing into your heart and keep pushing into your mind. What James is saying is this. You too, beloved can be tempted to think that you believe the right things and it changes your moral behavior so that yes, you know God is powerful and and therefore you'll do this or you'll do that. You might have a relationship in which you shudder at God too and it's not genuine or authentic. It's not real. You just know that God is powerful and therefore you want to do the right thing because you're afraid of what may happen if you don't. That's not authentic faith. Maybe here is a good place to put an example in. If you'll think through this with me. Um, A few months ago, there was someone in in our neighborhood who was uh, um, selling their home and I think moving maybe into a retirement facility, I can't remember exactly. But we became aware that they were trying to sell things in their house. So we went over to their house and we found these two club chairs, and they've been sitting in our garage ever since. And we we have every intention of uh, you know cleaning them up and resurfacing them and all that sort of thing. Have you ever done anything like this? You buy something like, oh yeah, that's beautiful. We need that. So we bought these two chairs. Of course, they were dirt cheap. And we plan on resurfacing them. I want you to think about the idea of a chair for a minute and plug in what James is saying into this analogy of the chair. I want you to plug in trying to separate faith and works into this <clears throat> analogy of the chair. You see, the person who says, the person who comes to James or comes to God and says, you know what? Um, you've got works, but I've got faith. I, I believe the right stuff. That's the kind of person that looks at the chair and says, you know what? I can tell you how this chair is made. I can tell you how it's designed. I can tell you why you need it. I can explain it to you inside and out. I can compare it to other chairs. I can tell you everything about this chair that you ever wanna know. I've studied it, I know what it's made of. And James is saying, yeah, that's great, sit in it. Don't just tell me about all this stuff that you know about the chair. Don't just explain to me the ins and outs and why it's better than others. Sit in it. Put your whole weight in it. Live like you actually believe those things that you love to talk about. The second window, the second window is do you love others more than yourself? You see, the demons know truth and they use it for themselves to wreak havoc in the world. Genuine, authentic faith takes what is true and sits in it and lives it out so that there's no problem with knowing the truth, but knowing the truth in and of itself, mental assent to the truth in and of itself isn't enough. It means that deep down we all need to really think about, do you really love people? Do you really love others more than yourself? Do you like to argue all the time? When you look at your life, can you tell if you're the kind of person that just constantly wants to correct? Or do you really love people? Do you have a heart for people? Are you willing With whatever knowledge that you have, are you willing to engage real human beings in real time and space, meeting them where they are? Do you love people? Or do we just love ourselves? And we love to talk about the truth, but we never ever live it out. Beloved, it's important to know the truth and believe the truth. Doctrine is very, very important. But it needs to be lived out. And it needs to be lived out in such a way that we actually care about and love people. That we don't view people as brains on sticks. That we don't think that growing in Christ-likeness is measured by how much we know. Do you have a heart toward people? Just think about it. Wrestle with it. Because let me tell you, people aren't easy to love. Have you noticed? You're not easy to love. I'm not easy to love. People are hard to love. And it takes time. And beloved, I don't think this is changing anytime soon. But when I look around at the culture and maybe you view the same things, it's almost void of love. And I'm talking about genuine care for others. I'm not talking about arguing right and wrong all the time. I'm talking about caring about people. We live in a culture that doesn't really forgive. Work that out. Think about it. Keep thinking about it. Window number three. Real genuine faith creates real friendship. Now, look, what James does in 20 through 24 is he goes into the story of Abraham. Do you remember this story? I need to fill in some details for you so you get the gist of what he's talking about in 20 through 24. Remember, Abraham was this man that God came to and gave him an incredible promise. He came to Abraham when he was really old, and by that I mean like 90, and he said, you're going to have a child. How about that? And he said, not only are you gonna have a son, but you're gonna have descendants. And not only are you gonna have descendants, but the whole world is gonna be affected because of what I'm gonna do through you, Abraham. That sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? And Abraham knew that he was really old. As a matter of fact, we find in other parts of the scripture that Abraham knew that he was as good as dead when it comes to being capable of having children. And the the, the Bible actually has this beautiful phrase, it's something like this, uh, against hope, in hope he believed or something like that, it's awesome. Like he knew he was as good as dead And yet he believed God and what God said to him and what God was going to do and what God promised him. Abraham believed that. He entrusted all that he was to God and God considered him a righteous man. Not because Abraham did anything, but because Abraham believed everything that God said. And oh, by the way, Abraham wasn't perfect, far from it. Matter of fact, if you lined up his record and found out good things versus bad things, I'm sure the bad things would outweigh the good. He wasn't a great man. He wasn't a perfect man. Matter of fact, when God gave this promise to Abraham, Abraham actually had to wait like 20 plus years, 25 years before this son was born. Can you imagine that? If you hear those words when you're about 90 and you have to wait 20 more years, 25 years, that's a, what? Now we're in the triple digits here. And, and, and Abraham, in that time, that 20, 25 year period, Abraham decided, you know what, I'm gonna to try to take matters into my own hands. Sound familiar? You receive God's promises and you think, well, this is taking God too long. So you start trying to figure out how you can accomplish what God said he's gonna do for you and try to do it in your way. Yeah, that was Abraham, just like us. And then he finally had a son, and the right son, and his name was Isaac, and then God said to Abraham, you know what, I need you to sacrifice that son. And so Abraham gathered up his son and he went up the hill to sacrifice his son. Like, take this in, please, take this in. This is not fiction, this is not myth, this is real. God said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And you know what Abraham says. Abraham tells those who traveled with him, we are gonna go up the hill and we will come back. Pretty awesome, you can read about it in Genesis 22 and uh, while they were traveling up the hill, his own son, like the son, looks at his dad and says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? (sighs) Can you imagine that? And Abraham says, God will provide, son. God will provide. We find other places in the scripture where it tells us that Abraham knew that God could even raise his own son from the dead. So Abraham went to sacrifice his son and God stopped him. You see, the third window is thinking about how this genuine faith creates real friendship. We're almost there to get to that point of talking about friendship. I just want to keep it in your mind because Abraham threw himself wholly on God. Imperfect as it was. God declared Abraham justified and right. Matter of fact, maybe it's good to take a little sidebar and explain that. Look at verse 21 and 22. We need to understand this idea of justified real quick, real quick. You may have more questions about this. You can ask me afterwards, but real quick, let's look at this. You see, fundamentally, primarily, when you see that word justify in the Bible, you need to know this that it is describing an act of God in which God, through grace and by grace, declares someone righteous, not because of anything that they have done, but because of what God does for them. And God promises them in Jesus So that when God says that Abraham was justified, when God declares Abraham justified, it means that Abraham was a righteous man, not because he had done anything, but because he believed God. That's it. That is the fundamental, primary meaning of that word. But it also means this. And this is how James is using it here in 21 and 22. Justify can also mean this prove it. So if I said to you, "Bee's barbecue is the best barbecue in Pitt County, you would say, justify yourself, justify that position, wouldn't you? Give me the reasons why that's true. You see, James is saying that Abraham had faith, but he proved it. Look at the end of 21 and 22 where it says his faith was made complete. He believed, but it came to its fullest expression as he lived out that faith and acted in faith. In other words, Abraham sat in the chair. You get it? Abraham didn't just hear from God and believe what God was saying. He sat in it and acted on that faith. He took his own son and was willing to do exactly what God told him to do. Now we get to the friendship part. Do you see where it says that he was a friend of God? Beloved, do you look at God that way? Do you look at him as your friend? Do you realize that God looks at his people as if you are his friend? Have you ever thought about that? Real friendship. And what happens in real friendship? We hold nothing back. You get it? Abraham believed God and he lived like it. He held nothing back from God. He held nothing back, not even his own son, not even the promise of that son. He didn't didn't withhold anything from God. He was a friend of God and God was his friend. God withheld nothing from Abraham and Abraham withheld nothing from God imperfectly, imperfectly. Beloved, do you have any friends? Really? Look at your life. Do you have any friends? Do you have real friends? Do you remember what it was like when you were in high school or college or or, or uh, grad school or or um, maybe a relationship that you've had with a boss or maybe a relationship that you had with a, a particular coworker? Maybe it's your spouse. I don't know. Do you remember the times when someone would say to you, well, "What are you doing tonight?" And you'd say, I, "I'm I'm gonna hang out with my friend, with my friends." Well, what are you gonna do? I, I don't know. Well, where are you gonna go? I, I don't know. Well, when are you coming back? I I don't know that either. Because you didn't care. You just wanted to be with your friend and you wanted to be with your friends. Do you remember that? Those of you that are married, have you forgot that your spouse is supposed to be a friend? That you just like hanging out with them? Everything doesn't always have to be scheduled and organized and every minute worked out. Have you forgotten to be a friend and what it's like to have a friend? Because again, we live in a culture that is virtually friendless where people are so lonely. And and when people wanna hang out with their friends, it's not because they're bored. It's not because they wanna get together and stare at screens. It's not because it's the best thing they know what to do. It's because they actually like the people, right? That's what God is saying that salvation does. Genuine friendship, genuine faith creates friendship between us and God. And it means that we can therefore be friends to other people. We can be the kind of people that others want to talk to and spend time with. Could that be you? Should it be you? Are you withholding in some way from someone who appears to be your friend? Beloved, we need friends. We all do. We need community. We need relationship. Think about your friendships. And if it's hard for you to imagine that God is your friend, I've got a book I'd love to give you called Gentle and Lowly. I'd love to give it to you. I've got 250 copies of it just to give away. If that is a struggle for you to think that God looks at you as a, as a friend, I'd love for you to read that book and think about it. I'd Love to talk with you about it. You can see me afterwards. Fourth, the fourth window is this, that genuine faith is grounded in hope. James picks this character from the Bible that we don't think much about, Rahab. You remember growing up that we all, I, I, I listened to this, so I'll, I'll take this from someone else. Um, growing up, if you were involved in Bible school or whatever it was, do you remember there ever the a song about Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, remember all this? How come there were no songs about Rahab? I'll just let you think about that. Rahab is mentioned here. James appeals to Rahab to teach us something about genuine faith. Rahab was a prostitute. And let me tell you, in the ancient world where women were thought of as property, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a prostitute. I can't imagine her life. I can't imagine the abuse. I cannot imagine how she was thought of. I, just, I, just, I really don't think I can wrap my mind around that. Because even in our culture, prostitution is horrible, but at least, at least there are some that can, you know, have enough money to make it on their own or get out, right? We're talking about a culture that didn't encourage that even if you were not a prostitute and you are a woman. And this is Rahab. She's a prostitute, and what happens? God is coming to Jericho. God is continuing to extend his mission, and he comes to Jericho through his messengers, and messengers come to Jericho on God's behalf, and Rahab hears about it, and she talks to those messengers, and she hides them, and then she helps them get out of town safely. She does all that, and what she says in Joshua 2 are things like this. She says, I know what your God has done, I've heard of the stories of what he did to bring you out of Egypt. I know what he did at the Red Sea. I know what he's been doing. Rahab heard these stories of God and living her life, realized that following God and receiving what he has in his plan for the world is far better than mine. And she trusts God. She even says to the, to the messengers that come, you know what, when you guys return, Um, please remember me and my family, uh, Rahab, they did. And you have been remembered for more than multiple millennia because you're in the lineage of Jesus. This is amazing. And James is saying, have you ever thought about Rahab? Have you ever thought about her life? Have you ever thought about how what she knew God was going to do, the future plans of God affected her present decisions and what she knew that God had done in the past propelled her forward in her life. She knew what God had done in Egypt. She knew what God had done in the Red Sea. She knew that God was coming, that in the future he was going to come to Jericho. She knew what God was planning to do. She knew what he had done and she threw herself on him completely. Beloved, Genuine faith is being full of hope in who God is and what he says he will do. And if you hear all of this this morning and you think to yourself, whoa, this is so overwhelming. I can't do all this. I can't even measure up to this. In other words, if you look through those four windows and and you've turned them into a list If you've heard those, if you've looked through those four windows and thought, you know what, I need to care about the needs of others, and I need to love others more than myself, and I need to work on my friendships, and I need to act more like I have hope. If all you hear from this is a list, and you feel overwhelmed, beloved, don't you see the gospel in those four things? Don't you realize that those four windows help you see Jesus and what he has done for you? Do you realize that? Who is the one who cares for the needs of others more than anyone else in the universe? This guy named Jesus who cared for our deepest need and he came and he lived the life that we haven't and he endured the cross and he emptied the tomb. He blew a hole out the back of death to meet our deepest need. And that is being reconciled to God. D- do you see Jesus through window number two? That He loved others. People like you and me who are his enemies. He loved us all the way to death. Do you see him through window number three? That what he did brings us to God and therefore God is our friend and we are a friend of God, just like Abraham. Do you see him through window four? Because his death and resurrection guarantees a living hope for you and me. That we know he's coming back and he's gonna make all things new and therefore that means that we can live lives because of Jesus, motivation from Jesus, that we can care for the needs of others that we can love other people rather than just ourselves, that we can work on our friendships and being a good friend, that we can live lives of hope. That's what brings us to the table.